Our cases here at Rocky Mountain Red-Handed involve physical, mental, and emotional trauma. Please listen with caution and care. Reach out to 988, the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, if you or someone you love needs help. No one is alone. The Rocky Mountains hold many mysteries. Millions of people enjoy the natural beauty, but some come across the hidden dangers. This is Rocky Mountain Red-Handed. I'm Melanie, here with my dear friend Becky. The stories we share are remembered by some, but forgotten by many. Let's dive in to Rocky Mountain Red-Handed. Hi, Becky. How are you? I'm great, Melanie. How are you? I am doing good today. And we are so excited. We wanted to say hello to our new listeners. Our audience is really growing and we just want to take a minute to welcome you to the podcast and say thank you so much for being here. Thank you to everybody who has shared, who has liked, subscribed, all those things. We just, we really appreciate it. It means the world to us. It is so exciting. Yeah. Thank you so much for all the support and the love. And we want to say thank you for all the case recommendations and the feedback we're receiving. We're getting uh, messages and emails and yeah, it's really fun. Yeah. And we check every day, probably too many times, but it's just so fun to see those numbers growing. I'm always checking them all the time and it's so fun yes, to see that. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So Beck, someone asked how we met. Do you, do you remember how we met Mel? Do you? I do remember how okay. we met. Do you remember? Well, I remember the first time we like hung out together yeah. mm -hmm. we went our neighborhood was doing like summer activities and we went down to a little river and I think it ended up being just me and you and I our think, kids I'm yeah trying to, I don't think anyone else showed up and our kids just played and we chatted forever yeah we live in a really hot climate so it sounds kind of you know weird but we went and hung out under like an overpass under a bridge <laughs> under a bridge and let our kids play in the water there <laughs> So it was fun. It's nice to be here with you, Mel. And now look at us, Mel. We have a podcast. I know. It's so good to be here with you, Becky. Great to be here with you, Mel. And now let's just jump into our story. Yeah, our story takes place today in the great state of New Mexico. Um, have you ever been to New Mexico, Becky? I have. I've, I've driven through it a few times. I haven't spent a lot of time, but I'll tell you my favorite name of a city is in New Mexico. Your favorite name? What, yeah. what is that? So yeah, it's a city called Truth or Consequences. There's really a city called that? Yes, it's oh called Truth or Consequences. Isn't that cool? And that is very interesting. I have actually never been to New Mexico. I've been to a lot of states, but not New Mexico. But mm -hmm. Truth or Consequences, that's a cool name. It's very memorable. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. The community in Farmington love their city nestled in the northwest corner of the state. Yeah, the community has a lot of different types of people that call Farmington home, all who enjoy the quiet desert air and the open spaces. It's a popular retirement destination, a place to settle down and enjoy your golden years. And it's also known as an outdoor playground for adventurers with like, you know, their can-ams and side-by-sides ready to crawl up the towering red rocks. That kind of sounds like where we live yes. as well. It's kind of similar. It does sound a lot. The Dunn family had chosen Farmington as their home and the place to raise their family. Family. They embraced the sense of community, and in return, the community definitely embraced the Dunn family. Monica came from a well-known and respected New Mexico family. She had a successful career and endured her three children and her husband, Paul. 
Paul worked at the Farmington Police Department. He was a traffic officer, and he also worked part-time as a private guard for a retired New Mexico governor. They both worked really hard at their careers, and they loved their children and family. Yeah, but as time marched on, the marriage really began to fall flat. Marriage is really hard. It takes work every day to even have a fighting chance. Yeah, between work, bills, kids, time, it is really hard. Yeah. After several years together, Paul and Monica's marriage had become very strained they were like seriously holding on by a thread they had some financial trouble that was really weighing heavily on them they had debt from creditors that haunted them day and night it all came to a breaking point when monica discovered paul was having an affair we definitely love our law enforcement yes we do Mm -hmm. but did you know that cops actually have a much higher divorce rate in the united states that doesn't surprise me like i wonder what the cause i would is it stress I don't know, crazy schedule, other temptations. Yeah, women do love a man in a uniform. That Mm -hmm. is true, yeah. The day in and day out horrible things that they must see really probably affects them and affects their relationships. I mean, how could it not affect them? Yeah. Yeah, I read a blog post by a retired police chief, and, you know, he gave his opinion. He said that the fundamental psychology makeup of police officers play a big part in cheating, like... Mel, they're like, they're adventure seekers. They like it. They like the chase. That is so interesting. I mean, it makes sense. They kind of like the game of it all. It's Mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah. So Paul and Monica made the difficult decision to separate. Paul moved out, but this didn't stop the couple from seeing each other practically every single day. Yeah, they still were really involved in each other's lives. They shared two children, so they had to see each other and communicate all the time. Also, they just couldn't leave each other alone. Yeah, sometimes you get stuck in those bad cycles. Paul and Monica were in this habit, this unhealthy cycle of emotional abuse. Until the morning of April 4th, 1994. It was the day that would change everything. Paul arrived early to the house to have breakfast with his two daughters. He missed his daughters and wanted to enjoy a few precious minutes on that Monday morning before the hectic week began with work and school. Monica, who was just 31 years old, was busy readying herself for the workday as well. She had something big to tell Paul that morning. She had made the decision to file battery charges on her soon-to-be ex-husband. Yeah, this charge would destroy his career as a peace officer. Paul loved his job and had been with the Farmington Police Department for 11 years. She told Paul what she planned to do to him. Paul was shocked. He said he was completely dumbstruck. He was so confused. Monica quickly left the room, maybe to avoid another fight possibly, but Paul followed her to her bedroom. Yeah, Paul... Paul later testified that Monica slammed the bedroom door. Paul pleaded with her through the door and said, I want to know what I have done. Paul heard what he described as a metal click coming from the bedroom door. He tried the doorknob and realized the door was just shut. It was not locked. He reached for the doorknob and it turned. Paul testified that when he opened the bedroom door and saw his wife sitting on the bed, she was bent over something. Suddenly she fell backwards. Paul testified that he saw Monica shoot herself in the stomach. He threw himself towards her and saw the blood pouring from her abdomen. He pleaded with his wife to stay alive and frantically asked her what she had done. Paul picked her up and carried her to the garage. Okay, so this, like, gave me some concern. Why do you think he felt like he needed to move her? Yeah, that's really interesting. Like, That wouldn't be my first thought if there was an injured person, and obviously they tell you not to move an injured person, but my first thought wouldn't be like, let's move her somewhere else. Yeah, well, and especially, he's he's an officer. He's a police officer. He has training. He should know. So, yeah, I don't know. 
So he called 911, reported the shooting, and quickly began life-saving efforts. Um, as we just said, as a police officer, he was well-trained for these emergency situations. Yeah, so Paul focused in on his training. When several Farmington officers arrived at the house, they witnessed Paul, who was covered in blood, giving Monica CPR. Monica Eileen Sanchez Dunn was transported to the hospital, but it was too late. She was pronounced dead on arrival. The 31-year-old mother of three had died. Family poured in after frantic phone calls were made. Monica came from a tight-knit family, and they just didn't believe Paul's story. Yeah, they just could not believe that there was any way that Monica would have taken her own life. We can understand that because, you know, I think any family would feel this way, that they would just would not understand why their loved one would do that. With everything else going on, this is a very suspicious crime scene. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So Paul's sense of home and community in Farmington quickly began to slip away. No one seemed to believe his story. Family, friends, co-workers, they all did not believe Paul's story. The Farmington Police Department quickly called in New Mexico State Police to handle the investigation. With Paul Dunn as a friend, colleague, and an officer of the Farmington Police Department, the state would need to take over the case. Yeah, they couldn't risk any biases or conflicts of uh, interest in a case that was this big. That makes sense. Very smart. Yeah, it would have been a huge conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. So minutes after Monica was pronounced dead, Paul's friends and fellow officers started to take in the crime scene and instantly doubted Paul's statement. Yeah, it had been a messy few months for Paul and Monica. It's a couple going through a terrible divorce. Yeah, a woman claiming domestic violence. A cop cheating around town and having an affair. Yeah, then a shotgun to the stomach. It's questionable. Yeah, come on. It it really did kind of have crime of passion practically written all over the crime scene. Yeah, they really all believe that Paul must have shot his wife. The investigators began to gather any and all evidence they could at the scene. And they got right to work. Yeah, so let's take a quick break real quick, Mel. Okay? Sounds good. Let's do it. Rocky Mountain Red-Handed is brought to you by Balance of Nature. I love my Balance of Nature. I take it every morning and it makes me feel so good. I do not like to eat vegetables, so I take my Balance of Nature to be able to get in the nutrients that I need. Go to balanceofnature.com and use promo code REDHANDED for 35% off your first order. We call it three and three. I take my three capsules of veggies, three capsules of fruits, and it gives me all I need. So that's Balance of Nature, promo code REDHANDED. Thank you so much to our sponsors. So now we're going to get back to our story. Yeah. Okay. So there was no usable fingerprints on the shotgun that was used to kill Monica. So the murder weapon wasn't much help. Yeah. Law enforcement observed a wall in the bedroom. It was peppered with holes from the shotgun. Crime scene investigators cut and removed the wall, sheetrock and all, from the crime scene to preserve the evidence. Yeah. They found pellets embedded behind the wall into the two by fours and into the brick. Yeah. Not far from where Monica had laid in the garage floor bleeding, investigators searched Monica's car. In the car, the officers made a startling discovery. They found a domestic violence complaint form filed just the day before on April 3rd. Yeah, Monica had gone down to the Farmington police station and had already met with an officer. This is not looking good for Paul. No. Mm -hmm. So she had requested photographs to be taken of several large bruises all over her body. The bruising was mostly focused on her cheek, thighs, and legs. The police did not follow protocol during this visit at all. A male officer had taken Monica into a private room and took photos. Okay, just the two of them. This 
does not sound right. No, even like at the doctor's office, a professional doesn't go into a private room with someone just one on one. They have someone else. They so usually this have seems someone weird. there. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But yeah, so they were in the room alone for about ten minutes together. Door closed, blinds closed. Yeah, this is definitely a. I don't think how it's supposed to be done. A proper police procedure would have been to ask a female officer to be present. So I don't know if this really means anything or if... I, I agree. I mean, it, it, it sounds fishy. It could be nothing at all. I don't know. Yeah. We don't really know. During the autopsy of Monica Dunn, the medical examiner found two abrasions by the shotgun entrance wound. Yeah, so now to understand this case and the forensics used in it, we really have to have like a little lesson on shotguns right now. So Mel, do you know much about shotguns? I don't know much, but we're going to learn. Yes, we are. So here's a crash course in shotguns for anyone out there, including me, that may need it. Yeah. So the gun that was used to kill Monica was a shotgun, like we said. A shotgun is a long-barreled gun that shoots a shot shell instead of a bullet. So a shot shell is a cylinder-shaped plastic casing that holds like various amounts of pellets. It matters, you know, how big of a target you're trying to hit. Yeah. So when the shotgun is fired, the gun shoots this shot shell instead of a single bullet. Yeah. So it's almost like a little plastic cup. After being fired from the gun, the shot shell plastic casing opens up and it almost opens up like a flower. Yeah. When the casing opens up, the pellets spray out towards its target. So instead of like one single bullet striking the target, a shotgun spreads out like multiple projectiles, the the pellets. Yeah. Shotguns are mainly used to hunt small game, birds. The shot shells make it easier to hit like a small moving target. Yeah. And people do it when they do like competition shoots. A lot of times they use shotgun, but also shotguns are great for home defense because you really don't have to like aim perfectly because it sprays out. Oh, that's interesting. Have you ever shot one before, Becky? Okay. No, but I, we have one. My dad gave my husband and I, um, his father. So my grandfather has a double barreled side-by-side shotgun. This gun is so huge. So Mel, you know my husband, Christian. Yep. He's a big dude. Uh-huh. He's a big guy. He shot it, and it had such a bad kick that he, like, had this massive black and oh blue bruising gosh. all over his, like, chest and shoulder. It was – it's a huge old gun. So, no, I have not shot that gun. I'm terrified to shoot it. Yeah, that's have, big. Have, have you, Mel? I have never shot a shotgun um, before. Yeah. I don't want a bruise from that. Yeah. It's – they're big. Well, yeah. they can be big. Yeah. yeah. Uh, shotguns are really powerful weapons. Yeah. So – yeah, so back to that bruising. The medical examiner found the bruising around the entrance, entrance wound. Yeah, the medical examiner saw these abrasions and concluded that the shot cup, the plastic casing, had opened before entering Monica's body and had caused this bruising. So he believed that the muzzle or like the end of the shotgun was about one to three feet away from Monica's body at the time of the shooting. Yeah, and that would be consistent with Paul shooting Monica in the bedroom. That sounds about the right distance apart from each other. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense if there's bruising around the the entrance wound. Yeah, so from the muzzle to the trigger of the shotgun was about 29 inches long. So Monica couldn't have pulled the trigger if it's 29 inches. Yeah, her arms would have needed to be twice as long to be able to pull the trigger. Yeah, the investigators and the DA did not believe Paul whatsoever. The evidence was definitely stacking up against him. Authorities believe that they had the evidence to prove Paul's story was a lie and that he had murdered his wife. Paul denied killing his wife during his long interviews with the New Mexico State Police. He freely offered to take a polygraph test, which he passed with no signs of deception. But Mel, what do you think about him taking the polygraph and offering it? 
with him being a cop. Like he maybe he knows how to kind of trick the polygraph test and yeah, get well, around it. Well, and I mean, if he's comfortable around polygraphs, that's true. You know, I think we've talked about this. I would never take a polygraph. No, me neither. I'd be like freaking out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Paul swore that he was at least six feet away from Monica in the doorway of the bedroom when the gun was fired. And no matter how many times he repeated the story, nobody believed Paul. Yeah, he was arrested and he was charged with first degree murder. There was no bond hold. Yeah, which means Paul would be sitting in jail until his trial date. Yeah, jail was not kind to Paul. Yeah, well, him being a police officer, he was separated from the general population for his protection. Yeah, definitely for his own safety. Yeah, it didn't seem like it being there day after day by himself. Paul spent 23 and a half hours a day, seven days a week, alone in a single cell. For eight and a half months, Paul sat alone in solitary confinement. And I understand that they need to keep him separated from the other people because he was a police officer and I get keeping Mm -hmm. him safe, but solitary confinement will do something to you psychologically. It's crazy. Well, and he was there for eight and a half months. Yeah. I mean, I I don't, I I, I agree with you that he needed to be separated, but I just, I don't know how anyone can emotionally handle that. That's crazy to me. Yeah. Yeah. So he is sitting in jail. He has lost his job that he loves. He couldn't see his daughters during his time in jail. His friends are gone. All of his buddies, all of his good friends down at the station believed that he was a murderer. Yeah. All he had in his life was four walls surrounding him each day. Paul said that every day was literal torture. He said his time in jail really broke him. Broke him. That's like a really powerful thing to say. Yeah. He had become so desperate that he made a decision for his future. If the jury found him guilty of Monica's murder, he decided that he would take his own life. He could not spend the rest of his days as an ex-cop in prison. Yep, so Paul kept a razor hidden in his jail cell just in case he was found guilty. As Paul counted the days in jail, he had a team of lawyers and experts working hard on his defense. Shortly after Monica died, Paul knew that he was going to need to find an attorney. Yeah, a really good attorney if he had any type of chance to see freedom again with this case stacked against him. Yeah, he reached out to longtime friend Victor Titus. Victor was such a good friend to the Dunn family that Mel get this, he actually served as a pallbearer. At Monica's funeral. Oh my gosh, that is so crazy. He was so close to the family. Crazy coincidence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. While at the funeral, Victor was talking to a few members of Monica's family. Yeah, he mentioned that he thought that they would have chosen only family as the pallbearers. The relative said that they didn't choose the pallbearers. They said that Monica had chosen each one of her pallbearers instead. So Monica, I guess, had left careful instructions for her funeral service. So, okay, this is kind of morbid, but do you have plans for your service that you shared with your family? No. You haven't? No. Okay. Do you? I do. I've told my husband, my husband's like, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Yeah, I I don't know. I just don't think I can, like, talk about that. I feel like if I talk about it, then it's going to happen, <laughs> which is just, terrible. Or maybe I'm just really picky and know exactly what I want. Yeah, and yeah. I'm like, once I'm gone, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> So, during the pretrial hearings while serving as Paul's defense attorney, Victor Titus thought back to this comment made at the funeral. He wondered, how did Monica's family know who she wanted to serve as her pallbearers? Yeah, Victor realized that maybe the family was holding back on some evidence. Did Monica leave a suicide note? 
the defense had a right to see this note if it existed. So Titus did question Monica's family about it. Monica's father said that he did have a note that Monica left at home and it was sitting in his filing cabinet. That's interesting. I wonder if this was intentional that he was holding back this note and hiding it. I mean, I would think so because Paul didn't know about it. So yeah. mm-hmm. Apparently she had given this note to a family member a month before her death. A full month. In this note, she detailed her feelings of helplessness, you know, her broken marriage, what valuables were to be given to loved ones, and an outline of what she wanted for her funeral, including the pallbearers. Interesting. The defense called this her suicide note, but prosecutors disagreed. They argued that they didn't feel like it was this document was a suicide note at all. It was a last will and testament. Yeah, I wish this is something that we could read through and to see the whole thing. I know, I know. Yeah, what do you think? From what we know about what's in the note, do you think it's a suicide note or do you think it sounds more like a last will and testament? I think of, I don't know, like my husband and I have a will and it's like very factual. There's no emotion in it. Right. This sounds like there's a lot of emotion in it, which to me kind of goes more towards the suicide note. Yeah, that's what I think too. It almost okay. sounds like it's a, it's kind of both, right? She has some of those things like yeah. this is exactly what I want, but she is also bringing the emotion into it. Yeah, I think you're right. It kind of is both. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, the defense was granted discovery of this note and prepared for trial. Prosecutors felt they had a rock-solid case due to the forensic evidence and the autopsy report. They believed Paul shot Monica from two feet away while they both stood in the bedroom. Prosecutors plan to argue that Monica was a victim of domestic abuse and that she lost her life at the hands of her abusive husband. Which, unfortunately, we see happen too much in this country. Very much agree. Yeah. The defense also thought that they had a rock-solid case. They worked hard and prepared for months. They had found the best of the best in forensic science. And they were ready to share what they had learned from these experts. The defense believed they had discovered the evidence needed to not just find him not guilty, but to prove that he was innocent. So let's take one more break and hear from our sponsors. Thank you, Balance of Nature, for sponsoring Rocky Mountain Red-Handed. Melanie, I love my Balance of Nature. I take it every single day. Balance of Nature fruits and veggies contain 31 flash-dried fruits and vegetables. 31. They are specifically selected for their combined effectiveness in strengthening the immune system, cell protection, and DNA repair. The fruit capsules contain 16 different fruits, including aloe vera, apple, banana, blueberry, cherry, cranberry, grape, grapefruit, lemon, mango, orange, papaya, pineapple, raspberry, strawberry, and tomato. Wow, Melanie, do you need a drink of water after that? That was a long list. Bounce Nature packs so much into their caplets. The veggies include a blend of 15 different pure whole vegetables. In the capsules, you'll find broccoli, cabbage, carrot, cauliflower, cayenne pepper, celery stalk, garlic, kale, onion, shiitake mushrooms, soybean, spinach, wheatgrass, yam, and zucchini. So go and order today so you can start taking your Balance of Nature vitamins. Go to balanceofnature.com and use code REDHANDED. Or you can use the link in our show notes. That's balanceofnature.com, code REDHANDED. Take your vegetables. 
And we are back. Thank you so much to our sponsors. So at this point, they're about to head to trial. Both sides are ready for this trial to begin. Yep. So while preparing for a trial, a defense expert noticed an important detail on a piece of evidence. While examining Monica's dress she wore on the day of her death, the expert noticed there was absolutely no Grex residue left on the material. So what is Grex? Don't worry. We didn't know either. (laughs) Yes. So Grex is the white powder-like substance that surrounds the pellets while it's in the shot shell. The Grex almost works as like a buffer for the pellets. Yeah. Grex looks almost like white granules. So the defense expert believed that if the shotgun was two feet away from Monica, like the prosecutors believed, her dress would have been covered in the fine white Grex powder. Yeah, Monica's dress had none of this Grex powder on it. To support his theory, the firearms expert performed a test. Yeah, using the same type of shotgun, standing at the same distance that the prosecution believed Paul was standing, he test fired a shot shell at a sample of material that was similar to the dress that Monica had been wearing on the day she died. The test showed extensive Grex all over the front and the back of the material. Yeah, on April 4th, Monica did not have any Grex on her dress after her death. So what does this prove? The defense firearms expert believed that the muzzle must have been pressed up right against Monica that day. And not two feet away like the prosecution believed. Yeah, so to summarize, if the gun was two feet away, the Grex would have had time and space to spread out and cover the dress. Yeah, Yeah, like almost like a puff of Grex, but... If the gun was pressed up against her, there was no time or room for the Grex to spread out. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So during this trial, the battle of these experts just continued to clash on what they believed. Yeah. Prosecution experts found on Monica's body what they believed to be shotgun pedal bruising. Shotgun pedal bruising is made from the plastic casing opening after the shell has been fired. So the casing opens up like a flower. Remember we talked about this. Yeah. And the petals can cause bruising against the skin. So this bruising would... Would support the idea that Monica was around two feet, you know, away from the muzzle of the gun. Yeah, so that would support the prosecution's case. Okay, but the defense had a very different way to interpret that exact same evidence. The defense expert argued that if the gun was two feet away, like the prosecution said, all four petals would have caused bruising, not just two of them. Yeah, which makes sense. Each petal would be about 90 degrees from each other, forming like a cross-shaped bruise. Yeah. During the trial, the defense expert actually re-identified the bruising on Monica's body. He didn't believe the bruising was caused by shotgun shell petals at all. He believed that the bruising was caused by the gun sight at the end of the muzzle. Yeah, so Mel, do you know what a gun sight looks like? Yes. So can you explain it? It's like a little... Like the little circle mm-hmm. that you look through, right, to make sure that you're aiming the correct yeah, way? Yeah, you line it up. So usually yeah. on a muzzle, there's like a little ball and it kind of edges up a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he said that he was certain the gun was pressed against Monica's stomach when she was shot. I mean, it looks like this case really will come down to this battle of the experts and what the jury believes. Yeah, I mean, they're all experts, but like, who do you believe? Yeah, Yeah, I agree. Many court watchers said the most impactful test the defense presented during Paul's trial was the shot shell trajectory. Yeah, the defense brought in and set up Monica's entire bedroom in the middle of the courtroom. That is so crazy. That's such a powerful image when they bring in like an actual part of the crime scene. It really does. And I think it almost like humanizes 
the victim as well, don't you think? Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. Like this is a room that I could be in. This is where she slept. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So remember the portion of the wall that law enforcement removed while they gathered evidence at the crime scene? Yeah, I do. They actually cut out the sheetrock with the holes from the pellets and everything. Yeah, mm-hmm. they brought in the portion of the wall along with this bedroom setup. So the defense showed the route of each pellet from the shot shell that killed Monica. They defined the trajectory path of each pellet by using small round wooden dowels. Yeah, they fed the dowels through the wall of sheetrock and retraced the track of each and every pellet. Yeah, the trajectory was traced back to the position of the muzzle to the end of the gun. Yeah, so it was discovered to be positioned like very low, just inches off the bed and slightly inwards, like on the mattress of the bed. Yeah, not like at a standing height like the prosecution stated. Nope, yeah. The defense presented evidence that Monica had shot herself while sitting on the bed. Using a dummy in place and position of the victim, who is Monica, the defense set up a reenactment. All of this was played out in that little makeshift bedroom in the middle of the courtroom. I'm sure it was so powerful. The defense experts tracked each pellet from the muzzle of the shotgun to the entrance wound on the victim's stomach. And then they tracked it to the exit wound on the victim's back and through the wall of sheetrock and into the brick wall. Yeah, this demonstration, like laid out all of these diagonal lines of trajectory for each of the pellets. Yeah, it's kind of like a roadmap from like the gun to the victim Mm -hmm. into the wall, where exactly it traveled from. Mm -hmm. So the defense stated that Monica was sitting on the bed, not standing like the prosecution believed. The defense suggested that Monica rested the butt of the gun by her feet on the mattress. This was identical to Paul's original statement he made to the police. The defense also had a person the same size, weight, and height as Monica to demonstrate how she could have pulled the trigger. Yeah, so remember how the prosecution thought it was impossible for Monica to reach the trigger? Yeah, they said that her arms would have needed to be twice as long to reach it. So with the butt of the gun resting on the bed, the model was able to easily reach the trigger with the gun laying trigger up. So this revelation explained how she could have reached the trigger and also the bruising on Monica's stomach. Yeah, that that gun sight causing the bruising. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the bruise of the bead sight showed that the gun was laying trigger up on the bed. Yeah. Okay, so now I've got a question for you, Mel. With all this new evidence, do you think Paul could still be the trigger person? I mean, it sounds like the defense has pretty... They can explain every single thing where mm-hmm. it almost seems like the prosecution can only explain some of it. Mm-hmm. Um, technically, I guess he still could, but I don't think that's very likely. Well, like, Paul would have had to be, like, squatted down, like, practically on his butt, super low, with the gun, holding the gun upside down. Yeah. Yeah, and Monica would have had to be, like, leaning into the gun with it, like, against her stomach when he would have shot. She would have had to be almost like a willing participant. Right. Yeah, so the scenario does not sound likely, don't you think? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Mm -hmm. So Nelson Welch, the defense firearms expert, stated that if he was wrong on this case, he would never work another firearms case in his life. Wow, that is a strong statement. He was like that confident in what he was saying. He was certain of Paul's innocence. During the trial, the defense also had Paul's first wife and his girlfriend testify on his behalf. They both stated that Paul had never been physically abusive in any way during the relationship. Yeah, and to have an ex come and speak on your behalf is really powerful, I think. It reminded me of, do you remember the Johnny Depp trial? Yes. When Kate Moss came on yeah. and like 
yeah, it's powerful. Yeah. Um, would your ex-husband speak up for you? <laughs> yes, I, he would. You guys are on good terms. <laughs> yeah, I, think yeah, he I would. would speak for him. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So the prosecution and the defense each rested and the jury retreated to the jury room to reach the verdict. Paul Dunn's future was in the hands of 12 strangers. Yeah, they had been presented two contradicting scenarios. Um, which one would they believe? Well, it looks like it wasn't too difficult. The jury had their mind made up pretty fast. They reached a verdict within minutes. Which is so fast to go into that room and just, they had already, they already knew, basically. I I think that the defense did a good job um, of simplifying and demonstrating the scientific evidence, like really easy for anyone to understand. Don't you think? I think bringing in the bedroom and having... The like showing where the trajectory, the dowels exactly. Yeah, I think just made it easy for them to see. They just well, needed to visually see what happened. And like you said, it was they they like seriously gave a roadmap yeah. of how Monica was killed. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. So the jury did not want to come back to the courtroom too quickly to share the verdict. They wanted to waste a little time. So they each took a bathroom break and freshened up before returning to the courtroom. When the jury came back into the courtroom, they said they found. Paul Dunn, not guilty. During a criminal trial in a court of law, the prosecution has the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah, they didn't prove beyond a reasonable doubt. There was definitely plenty of doubt. But the defense did the work, exploring the evidence with science. And science proved Paul innocent. Yeah, exactly. Um, Paul admitted that he wasn't a good husband. He cheated on his wife and contributed to the chaos of the marriage. Yeah, I mean, if we locked up all the bad husbands, unfortunately, jail would be full. And bad wives, too, right? Yes, exactly. This case just shows that, like, you seriously never know what's going on in someone's marriage. Like, no matter how close, no matter what, you just don't know what happens behind closed doors. Yeah, there's definitely a lot that goes into a marriage and a lot that happens and we can just never judge it. Yeah, so, well... Paul never returned to law enforcement. He now works as a foreman for an oil company. Monica Eileen Sanchez Dunn was laid to rest at Green Lawn Cemetery in Farmington, New Mexico. So, Becky, what do you think about this story? There's many people that still doubt Paul's innocence. I It, it makes me sad. It sounds like Monica's really suffering in silence. Yeah. And um, I wish that she could have just had a little a little further point of view and just realize that this too shall pass yeah. and that she'd be okay. I feel bad. I, I do. How about you, Mel? Yeah, I agree too. It's just, it's so interesting to me though, that all of the police officers, all of his friends, everybody just quickly jumped to he was guilty, but she seems so crazy to have this close relationship with all these people. And as soon as there's anything out there about him being guilty, they're all like, yes, he is. So I wonder what made them you jump know what? to That's that. a really good point. Maybe there's like some fishy things going on with Paul. I yeah. Like, I wonder how she got all those bruises all over her body. I know. We don't know where she got those bruises. And I mean, there's yeah. photographic evidence of the bruises. Yeah. Yeah. Monica wrote in her note that, quote, the bruises on me will show. And like, how do you know that you're going to have bruises on you at the time of your death? She wrote that like a month before she died. I mean, I guess they could be self-inflicted, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I, I feel like this case still has a lot of questions around it. Yeah. Did she like plan to kill herself and set him up for murder? Was that her plan all along? I don't know. Do we have like a Gone Girl situation going on? Serious. Yeah. We'll never really know, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's death by suicide or murder, Monica died much too young. We wish the Sanchez and Dunn families peace and comfort. Yeah, definitely. So... 
now we're gonna go a little bit different direction mm -hmm. and we're gonna do our Rocky Mountain Redemption. So don't worry, New Mexico, we've got a good news story from your state. Yeah, thanks to the Good News Network. We don't want to just share the bad news from our beloved Rocky Mountain state. So here's your dose of good news from New Mexico. So the Regenerant Science Talent Search Competition is the nation's oldest and most prestigious STEM competition for high school seniors. This year, the program awarded more than 1.8 million to 10 finalists who exhibited exceptional problem-solving abilities and scientific leadership. Yeah, one of New Mexico's own, Lillian K. Peterson of Los Almas, New Mexico, was chosen as the top finalist. She is 17 years old, and Mel, get this, she won $250,000. That is so cool. She, Lillian invented a simple tool for predicting harvest early in the growing season. Early predictions help to improve good food distribution planning and offer a promising resource to aid groups working on global food insecurity. By analyzing daily satellite imagery, the tool she invented measures vegetation health of crops. Her tool has been tested domestically and in Africa, and in each and every one, it has successfully predicted the harvest with incredible accuracy. How so smart cool. is this girl, right? That's amazing. Lillian was motivated to do research in this field after her parents adopted children who faced food insecurity in their early lives. And she also read all about the famine in Ethiopia a few years ago, do you remember that, where yeah. it affected millions of people. Malnutrition in early years affects the developmental learning abilities in later years. So Maya Amara, president of the Society for Science and the Public, said, quote, students like Lillian Peterson are the stewards of our future. That is so cool. Mm -hmm. With these finalists at the forefront of scientific and engineering discovery, I know we are in good hands. Yeah, good job, Lillian. That's yeah, awesome. that's so cool. And good job, New Mexico. Yeah. And that is your Rocky Mountain Redemption for the week. So until next time, keep your hands clean.